0: Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Coquid. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. You may recall last week that I mentioned that last week was going that this week was going to be my final class. I actually found out today that that's not the case because vacation Bible school is actually not starting until uh, the week after, so even though it is technically June 1st, next Wednesday, I will be teaching that class as well. I thought it ended at the end of May, but uh, apparently I'm going to have one more class, which is good for me because, uh, as y'all recall with uh, my coverage of Chapter 11, I was really kind of trying to streamline through that as quick as I could, And I believe we covered like 53 verses in one night, which um, was good, but I would have liked to have taken my time, gone a little more in depth. And now since I'm going to have an extra week, that means that we can take a little bit closer look and dive a little deeper into the Scriptures than originally I had intended to. So the plan is to cover the remainder of chapter 12 tonight, and then we will cover the final chapter in Hebrews chapter 13 next week. So with that being said, we already looked at verses one through three, um, but uh, uh, we already did that. So I believe we touched on verses four through eight as well, but we didn't go very far into it because we were up against the end of class. So I'll just go ahead and read that again and we'll go over a couple points here. So we'll go ahead and read Hebrews 12, four through eight. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are punished by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he punishes every son whom he accepts. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there? whom his father does not discipline. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So you may recall that we were talking about resisting to the point of blood and how Paul is saying, you've not even gone to the fullest extent of persecution for your faith. You've not even gone to the furthest point. Now, that could be a reference to actual martyrdom, but it doesn't seem to be the case because... If that were true, first of all, it doesn't need to be said because if they were already martyred, he wouldn't be talking to them because they would be deceased. But the other half of that is also that the way that he portrays it in this verse is that you've not even gone to the point of shedding of blood. And so he's not trivializing persecution and the shedding of blood for the cause of Christ, but he's definitely saying that that's like the bare minimum that a lot of other people probably ones that they knew have endured to this point and they've not even got to that point yet. And so if we see from verses 5 and 6, this is actually a quote from Proverbs 3:11 through 12. And the point of that proverb and the point of this passage overall is that pain is not a sign that God is disapproving of your work. You know, it's it's a somewhat childish outlook but even as adults, we understand and experience this, that we feel as though when we hit roadblocks in trying to do what God asks us to do, we almost feel as though, well, that's a sign that I'm doing something wrong or I have uh, maybe misunderstood what God wanted me to do. But the scripture actually gives a very different picture of that. It, it describes the fact that this is taking place. What it describes is discipline is actually being something that God is doing to harden us just like a parent would a child. And so this is not a sign that God disapproves, but actually that He loves us. And I think that this particular passage of Scripture hit me particularly hard because, uh, you know, because I was very public about it at the time. Um, I've experienced some extremely terrible things that really improved my spirituality and made me better. And I think that all of us, if we were to go around the room, would be able to attest to some kind of great trial or difficulty that they endured that actually didn't dissuade but improved their Christian walk. I know with me, it was getting cancer at the age of 27 which was a terrifying thing for me. I'd never been sick a day in my life. I think before I went to the doctor and got diagnosed, I think the last time I had been to a doctor was, I don't know, I was maybe 10, 11 years old. And so I had gone more than a decade without having to even have a doctor's visit other than like maybe a regular checkup. And so all of that being said, uh, there was a lot that I gained from that. For one thing, it taught me empathy, because as a young person that is in the prime of their life and doesn't really have any health issues, it's difficult to relate, for example, to an older brother or sister whose body may not function the way that it used to, that has pain just getting out of bed in the morning, and it's a struggle for them on a daily basis. That was kind of impossible for me to relate to, and and frankly, I was not great about praying about people with daily struggles like that. And it wasn't that I didn't care. It was apathetic. It was just more that I couldn't really relate. And so that's just one example. And like I said, I'm sure that we could go around the room and everybody would have a story similar to that. But we all understand, and this is something that the Hebrew author is trying to get across to his audience, that they're thinking about backing out and throwing in the towel on Christianity because they are experiencing these heartaches and these difficulties that are coming with their faith. And Paul's saying, don't use that as an excuse to back out. If anything, this should be a time where you develop, where you get stronger, because if God is punishing you, that's the sign that you are a true son. That is the sign that he loves you and wants you to grow stronger, not a sign that he wants you to turn away from the faith. And really, You only need look around and see what a world without discipline looks like. It's an unfortunate reality, but I think that we could all look around at our society now and see that there is a world that does not like discipline. We have an unhealthy relationship with discipline. If you tell me that something I believe about myself is incorrect, then you're hateful and a bigot and you must not like me and and must be a terrible person. Uh, I mean, this goes to the ridiculous level of uh, you know, we're familiar, and this has been going on for a long time, with difficult societal problems like marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Um, That's been going on forever. But, I mean, nowadays, even if you're, you know, if I'm a man, but I think I'm a woman, and you tell me that I'm not a woman, then that's hateful to me. And so, this is the result of a world that hates discipline and does not want to hear it. And so, this is the same kind of mentality, to a lesser extent, of course, that the Hebrew author is trying to combat that this idea that, oh, well, if discipline comes along, there must be some kind of problem or God must disapprove. He's saying, no, actually the opposite is true. And in fact, if you weren't experiencing this discipline, if you weren't feeling any sort of cognitive dissonance or any kind of uh, pushback from that, that would be the sign that you're an illegitimate child, that you're not actually following God's Because the, I don't care how far down the rabbit hole of debauchery you go, I guarantee you can find a group of people that will approve. You can find a group of people that will say, yes, we agree. You're right for doing that and applaud you and going on. That is true of regardless of what you engage in. But following God, where there are standards and there are rules and there are expectations for how you live your life, that's where discipline comes in. And It's not a mistake that the word discipline and disciple come from the same root. So that's something to to keep in mind as we go through this uh, next passage of Scripture, because this is a continuation of that same thought pattern. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems not to be pleasant, but painful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Why is it that on some level, even bad fathers get some measure of respect from their children? Why is it when they tell their kids to do something, even if there's some semblance of rebellion, or some desire not to do it, or the, the child does want to push back on that, that on some level there is a level of respect and, and a you know an ex- expectation to listen to what is being said there. Um, and by the way, I'm, I'm not in any way trying to leave mothers out of this. This is just something that's not as true for mothers as it is for fathers. I think that we would all have to, if we were being brutally honest here, it's because there's some fear that the child has that's legitimate that the father is, is going to bring down some wrath on them. Now, I'm not saying mamas can't do that too, but that tends to be something that is more true of fathers. And because that fear is there, and, and I do mean fear, I don't mean respect, I don't mean reverence, I mean literal fear. And I think that that's what the Bible calls us to have as an attitude towards God as well. Not the only thing, of course, but a, an aspect of it. This is the same kind of thing that is being discussed here, where he's giving this analogy of God being like an earthly father. He's saying, look, we even gave our flawed human fathers a measure of respect because we understood their discipline in the long run was going to be something that is beneficial for us. Why would you not extend that same courtesy and that same respect to God? Why would you assume that the trials that he's having you go through are something that are not beneficial and that you should back out of when you were willing to endure the same level of discipline from your, uh, from your earthly fathers. And so it's a question that I think does stick in their mind and, and sticks out to them as to, well, you know, he has a point. I did that with my, my heavenly or I did that with my earthly father. Why should I not extend that same level of respect to my heavenly father as well? And of course, uh, one of the differences pointed out in verse 10 um, where he talks about he disciplines us for our good, part of that assumption that is implicit in that statement is, you know, earthly fathers don't always get it right. Sometimes they punish when they shouldn't. You know, trying the best they can. Sometimes they can't see every angle to every situation. Sometimes they mess up. God never has that problem. And so if you are going to extend that level of respect and remember that in their society, respect for fathers was far greater than it is in our, our modern thinking, That if you're going to extend that level of respect to a flawed human father, why would you not do that to an even greater degree when discussed with your heavenly father? Um, And I think that this is something that even if we don't necessarily enjoy it at the time, which is what he is saying here, because of course he's talking about discipline does not always seem to be something that we would desire. I think that we all know on some level this is something that is ultimately good for us. Um, Have you ever bragged about getting a whooping? I mean, some of you may not have, but you get a group of people together and somehow the subject of things you did wrong as a kid comes up and how you got a whooping for it. Generally speaking, what that does is it triggers a discussion where everybody is trying to outdo the previous speaker on how bad a whooping they got. So... I don't know why we do that. It's kind of a silly thing, but we're, especially if you get a group of guys together, we're constantly trying to one up each other on who got the worst whooping when they were a kid. And so I think that that is because we inherently understand that, you know, maybe sometimes our our earthly fathers are unreasonable or or go overboard or things, but you know what? We kind of deserved a lot of that. And I I don't know about you, but most of the times when I look back at times where, where dad disciplined me, yeah, he had his reasons. I probably deserved it, probably deserved worse in some situations. But the point is, we understand inherently with hindsight that that punishment was something that was necessary and helped us develop. And in the same way as Christian adults, when we're going through trials for Christ's sake, we need to understand that, yeah, in the moment, it doesn't feel good. In the moment, it's going, we're going to have an instinct to quit and to to throw in the towel, but since we have experience with discipline and we can look back at it with hindsight and say, okay, that actually was a good thing, then we ought to be able to say in the moment when we're experiencing that level of discipline, I don't like it now, but a time will come where I'll see the value in it. And so that's something that I think is being espoused by the Hebrew author as well, because by its very nature, Discipline is something that is unpleasant, even when we do it to ourselves. Have you ever been on a diet? That takes discipline. It's not fun. I want to be able to eat a sleeve of Oreos. I mean, that's just the way it is, but we know that that's not good for us, and so we have to have discipline in order to reach the goals and develop ourselves the way we want. Uh, In in studying, you know, studying is not always fun. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes you just got to power through it. And we may not enjoy it in the moment, but when we look back on that, we understand the value of it. And so, uh, since sometimes we have to have hindsight to really appreciate something like that, I think the same thing is being talked about here where he's saying for the moment, it's not something that is pleasant, but when we have been trained by it, it yields that peaceful fruit of righteousness. So let's go ahead and look at the next couple of verses here in verses 12 through 14. Therefore... Strengthen the hands that are weak uh, and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is impaired may not be dislocated, but rather healed. So this is an interesting passage here because it is bringing up the idea that is drawn from in Isaiah 35, 3. And so this is a not direct quotation, but kind of a paraphrase of that passage. And just for some context from what's going on in Isaiah 35.3, is that's when God delivers Israel when they've been broken up from evil nations. And so this idea of the hands being weak and the knees being feeble, it's this idea of a broken down body. And Israel is the broken down body that's being discussed in Isaiah Isaiah 35.3. And so in that same sense that he's talking about make these hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble um, make the paths straight and bring them back, restore them to their former glory. He's saying just as God did this on the corporate level, as Israel did, God is going to do the same thing for his church and for the individuals contained within it. So in the same way that, yes, Israel was broken up for a time and that was discipline for their sin, God is going to bring them back at some point as well. And so don't think that this time of discipline or this time of punishment is going to go on to infinity. It may even last the rest of your life, but we have an eternity with our Father. And so this time of discipline is going to be for a short time and restoration is on its way. And so hold out until that happens. And uh, there's another quotation in here in verse 13. It's sort of paraphrasing Proverbs 4.26. 4.26. So let's go ahead and read that section of Proverbs in Proverbs 4.24 through 27. Rid yourselves of a deceitful mouth and keep your devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. And so we can see this is the same kind of sentiment that is being espoused in Hebrews is the the proverb writer there, uh, this would be an early proverb, so this would be Solomon, is saying that you have to keep away from these temptations and keep your eyes firmly set on God. And that's important because what we focus on is what we hit. Uh, Humans, by their inherent nature, have a very narrow field of vision. We have to essentially be looking directly at something to be able to, to understand it and to see it clearly. We have some peripheral vision, but our peripheral vision isn't that great. And so in the same idea, in a very understandable metaphorical way, he's saying, if you want to aspire to be like God, if you want to aspire to his principles, you have to keep your eyes directly ahead, keep it fixed. Um, for those of you who have done any plowing, I don't know how many of you that is, but, you know, this would have been a metaphor that would have worked very well for early Christians who lived in a largely agrarian society. I don't know if you've ever done any plowing, but if you have, you'll notice that you only have to get distracted for a second for your row to get crooked. I mean, you can be, if, if you don't keep your eyes absolutely fixed on the point where you want to end up, your row is going to get crooked and it will be very difficult to, to go back on. And so it's the same kind of idea with God. If you are going to keep your eyes focused on God, that's the only way to actually hit that point. Otherwise, you're going to have a crooked path. And it talks about the way being straight and fixed. And so that's really what we want to be at. And the Hebrew author would have known, his audience would be familiar with this proverb and would have thought about that. And remember that he just talked about, this is not symbolism that's new to Hebrews either, he just talked about keeping your eyes on Jesus back in Hebrews 12, too. And so just a few verses ago, he was using the same kind of symbolism uh, in that respect as well. So let's go ahead and look at verses 14 through 17. Pursue peace with all people and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that there be no sexually immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it for it with tears. So, One of the things we can see from verse 14, where it talks about seeking peace with all people, that is something that comes straight out of the gospel. We know from the Sermon on the Mount, that's one of the things that Jesus talks about, blessed are the peacemakers. And so part of being one of God's children is a desire for peace doesn't mean you're always going to have peace. In fact, most of this chapter has been talking about what happens when there is not peace. And so God certainly recognizes that peace is not always obtainable, but it is something that should be sought after, should be desired, something that God's children should long for. And it's interesting that we're actually supposed to seek out peace with the very people that are persecuting us in the same way that Jesus did and then... Stephen did when he was being persecuted. We see throughout the New Testament, Christians praying for, caring about the very people that are persecuting them at the moment of being persecuted. And so this idea of seeking after peace and desiring that is something that is really just sort of par for the course in the New Testament. It's not something that's exclusive to Hebrews. This is talked about over and over again throughout the text of the New Testament. However, even though I think all of that is true. In verse 15, that might suggest that verse 14 is actually talking about Christians. And the reason that I say that is if you look at at verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that would seem to suggest that verse 14 is actually talking about seeking peace within the congregation. I do think that when it says pursue peace with all people, it's talking about the human family at large. However, considering the context and considering the subject matter and where it's going, I think he's trying to put special emphasis on those within the church. And that would make sense because if this very group of people he's addressing are also people that are thinking about leaving the faith, people that are thinking about not being Christians anymore and causing that division, forsaking the assembling of themselves, We've seen signs of this elsewhere in the book of Hebrews. And if that is true, what he may be saying is not only do you have to hold on to the teachings of Christ for your own sake and for your own salvation, but also because it is better for the kingdom of God. If you do so, if you pursue peace and you're pursuing holiness, then that is going to be something that benefits the congregation of people in which you worship. And so that's part of it as well. If you think about it, and this is an analogy that's not used here, but is used elsewhere in the New Testament. If we are an army, we're a spiritual army for God, which is something that is alluded to by Paul several times. If that is the case, then the worst thing that can happen to an army is not running out of weapons, running out of food. Those things are all bad. Don't get me wrong. The worst thing that can happen to an army is the army starts to infight. If you want to have a disastrous outcome from a military standpoint, that's the quickest way to have it. And so this idea that we have to pursue peace with one another and be unified, not only in the sense that we get along, but also unified in our ideology, unified in our belief and our goals, that's the way that we actually affect and come to a place where we can be successful in our mission for Christ. And by the way, this is somewhat bolstered by the fact that in verse 15, it talks about seeing that no root of bitterness causes trouble. That's a direct reference to Deuteronomy 29:18, which is a warning against those who worship other gods. The context of that verse where he's saying, don't let any bitter, or the Hebrew could be translated poisonous as well, to see that no root springs up at that. What he's talking about is idolatry. He's talking about children of Israel falling away from the faith and the law of Moses and worshiping idols. And the same thing is being talked about here in the book of Hebrews. He's saying, don't be drawn away by these newfangled ideas, this new theology that's being taught, whether it's Judaizers or it's people that are saying, you know, we want to pull you back into Judaism. And so I find that really interesting because what it's actually suggesting there is that Judaism now in the era of the New Testament is idolatry. Isn't that interesting? Because they've made the Old Testament, the Old Law, Moses, all of that into an idol because without God, which is now more interested in Christianity and following his son, the Old Law has essentially become an idol for them. And so he's trying to encourage them to unity through this inspiration of Deuteronomy, saying that you don't want this bitterness coming up and springing up within your ranks, just like they had that problem with following idols and following things that God did not command. And so that is a really interesting bit of symbolism there. Uh, verse 16 and 17 Why is it that Esau sold his birthright? We remember that story from Genesis 25, 29 through 34, right? Why did Esau sell the birthright? Okay, he was hungry. What was he offered in return? Porridge, stew, soup, however you want to transliterate that. Some kind of meal of of that. uh, And it was red. That's pretty much all we know about it. But the point is, he sold it for some kind of food because he was hungry. That doesn't speak very highly of Esau's perception of how important his birthright was. I mean, don't get me wrong, I've been really hungry too, but I've never been hungry enough to give up my spiritual faith for a meal. And so that's something that's that's being talked about here. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Why would he be willing to give up that birthright? Maybe so. We don't know that, Um, but Isaac was the one that bestows the birthright, not his brother. And so maybe he thinks, "I'll I'll just trick Jacob and go ahead and say that I'm giving him the birthright, but then really I'm going to get it back later. Maybe so. I don't know. That's one theory. I think what it really goes back to is that he looked at the world through physical eyes. He wasn't thinking about it in the spiritual sense. He's thinking, my body, my physical body needs food and I have this birthright, which is really not something that I esteem as all that valuable because it's just something intangible and something spiritual. I can't really use that as much as I could use a bowl of soup. And so he was looking at the world through physical eyes and that's a problem with exactly this audience. They're looking at the world and seeing all these problems that are coming in, the persecution that they are facing all of the obstacles and problems that they're having because of their faith. And they're saying, maybe we should just give it up. And so he's drawing this analogy between them and Esau, who did the same thing. He had this incredible birthright. I mean, Esau, for all we could have, he could have been the patriarch. I mean, that's not how it worked out. Obviously, we know that story. But In theory, Esau could have been the one through whom God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. And he was just like, no, I think I'll take the soup. That's how little it meant to him. And the Hebrew author is here saying, if having Jesus Christ as your savior means so little to you that you face some persecution and you're like, no, I'll, I'll go back to the law of Moses. It's the same mentality. They are looking at it through worldly eyes. And so uh, it, it really says something to where your focus is and where your eyes are, not on Christ, but on everything around you. And so this is the analogy that he's bringing forward here. So let's look at verses 18 through 21. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of the trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further would be spoken to them, for they could not cope with the command, if even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. So this is a very obvious recounting of the events of what happened when God visited the children of Israel on Sinai in Exodus 19. So this is before... The Ten Commandments were going to be given, but God is preparing Israel for that event. And so he's saying, you consecrate yourselves, you wash yourselves, you prepare yourselves, and no one, not even an animal that is with you, touches the mountain because it's holy and I'm about to descend upon it. And so while God was present, notice the... And I've always thought this was funny. I'm not trying to detract on here, but I think this is interesting. Um, The mountain itself is actually not holy because if you look in all of the old pagan religions, they would have holy mountains and holy sites. But when it comes to Mount Sinai, it was holy, but only for the time which God descended upon it. And so the mountain itself is not holy. God's presence is what makes it holy. And so that's an interesting distinction that you'll see there. And this same idea is sort of being conveyed in Hebrews where it's recounting this idea that the mountain of Sinai, because God's presence was there, was so holy that not even an animal could touch it and it not go without being punished. And so the reason that this is being brought up is it's contrasting the way that God had to deal with Israel versus the way God deals with us now. Think about that. They had to be so far separated from God that they weren't even allowed to touch the mountain where he was. And now we share in the blood and the flesh of God who was manifested in Jesus Christ. That's how close we are now versus the distance that Israel had at the time. And that simply goes back to the fact that we have a mediator in Jesus Christ that they didn't. We have a covenant that allows us to get a closeness to God that was not available to them at the time through Christ's blood. And so this is just a continuation of what we've seen throughout this entire book and studying this so far is this idea that we have a closeness which Israel could not hope to have back under the old covenant. And this is at a time where God was seemingly closer to Israel than he ever had been or would be in the future. Because remember, God actually spoke to Israel. How many times have you heard when you're speaking to somebody, if they're a skeptic or or maybe even a Christian, saying, man, I wish God would just come down and tell us what he wants us to do. Really? Because he did that and they didn't like it. They didn't like it a little bit. In fact, you'll remember right after that, they're like, "Uh, you know what, Moses, you handle that from now on. We'll let you talk to God and we'll just believe that whatever you say God said, we'll believe that that's what he actually said. Because of how scared they were. And even Moses was like, I am... I am terrified with fear and trembling. And so this is the kind of relationship that Israel had with God, that even in their moment where they get closer to him than ever before, they're too terrified to actually endure it. But now because we have a mediator with Christ, we're able to have that intimacy that they just simply could not replicate. Uh, And another thing that this emphasizes is that God's holiness is dangerous and it's because of that mediator, because our sins have been washed by Christ's blood, that we're able to, to approach him as close as we are. But as great as God's holiness is, we never need to let ourselves forget that it is also a dangerous thing. It is a dangerous thing for a sinful person to enter into God's holiness. will be destroyed. And that's the reason that it is that way. Um, but as we see, because we have a better mediator through Christ, we are able to come closer to him. Now verse 21, where it talks about Moses saying, "I am terrified and trembling," that is not a quote that is actually found in the Torah. It is implied in Exodus 19:16, "All of the people, where it talks about all of the people are terrified with trembling. Well, Moses is part of the people, so he would be scared too. Um, but also Moses, the recounting of the golden calf incident, which occurs in Deuteronomy 9:19, 9, also states that Moses was terrified. And so even Moses, who had a special relationship with God and was able to even see God's form, not his face, but his form, even he was terrified of God at that moment, which is something that I think that we're still, as Christians, supposed to have. But we also, because we're supposed to have a level of assurance with us as well, because we have that mediator through Christ. So let's go ahead and look at verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So this is a direct contrast to the symbolism that we saw in the last passage where it's talking about Sinai. He's saying, now you've come to the holy city, you've come to Zion, and this is the true mountain, the true Sinai, where we are able to have communion with him. And we're not only allowed to touch it, which they were forbidden to do, we're actually able to live and dwell upon that mountain in God's presence. And so verse 23 goes into this, and I love this phrase used here, the church of the firstborn. Um I think that's interesting because the church of the firstborn would of course, you know, that would be equivalent to the church of, of Christ since he is the firstborn, we see that elsewhere in Hebrews. But the implication here is that this is the dwelling place, the assembling place of the church in God's presence. And If he's the firstborn, and as Hebrews tells us, we are the ones that are born after him, we're essentially the siblings of Jesus gathering in this place, then that means that this is a place where we are welcomed and expected. We're part of the family in that sense. So my question in follow-up then is, what does it mean where it says the spirit of righteous are made perfect? Right. So, this is something that is true in in Greek. If you understand what the Greek word perfection means, it means fulfilled or brought to full maturity. And so, there is a completion there that while the church and the general assembly, they've already been enrolled in heaven. Our names are already on the roster there, but they are complete when they're brought into God's presence. And so while the church is established, it is there, it is real, that was the point of the Gospel of Matthew, that the kingdom is coming, we won't be made complete until we're actually there with Jesus in God's presence. And so uh, that's part of it. And then also the word perfected could mean the true form or the intended form. And so that was always the goal of Christ's coming, is to retrieve his people and to save them. Uh, Verse 24 is also very interesting because... Uh, What did Abel's blood say? You remember that story in Genesis. What is it talking about, about Abel's blood saying something? It speaks. What's he talking about there? Remember, what did God say to Cain after he killed him? Right. His blood cried out from the earth for vengeance. And so, isn't that an interesting contrast? where he's talking about Abel's blood, the blood of a murdered person crying out for vengeance for Cain's sins, Christ's blood does the opposite. Whereas Cain's blood called for vengeance upon the sinful, Christ's blood calls for forgiveness of the sinful. And so this is a, a very interesting contrast that is being drawn here where it talks about Jesus being the, the mediator He's saying that the sprinkled blood of the sacrifice of Jesus is better than Abel's blood because whereas Abel's blood just called out for a retribution of the sin that has taken place, Jesus, his blood actually calls for forgiveness for the very people that put him on the cross. And so it really shows the contrast of of Christ and Abel there and the difference between the blood of the old law and the the blood of the new covenant. Uh, And you'll also remember This is an important symbolism too. What was the result of that? Cain was exiled. He's cast out. He's not allowed to live amongst his family or other people. And even much later in his life, when he does establish a city, the name of that city literally translated means wandering. Cain never knew peace. He was a wanderer for the rest of his life. What's talking about here is having a permanent dwelling place in God's presence. And so it's not just the opposite in the the sense that the blood calls out for two different things. It's also the opposite in the result. Whereas the blood of Abel called for Cain to be a wanderer and be displaced and never to know peace or to know a home. The blood of Jesus calls us home. It says this is the place where you belong and you belong here because of the blood that has been shed. So real quickly, uh, and this wound up working out perfectly on timing. Let's go ahead and read the last few verses. 25 through 29. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised saying, once more, uh, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which cannot be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let's show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For for our God is a consuming fire. So we see in verse 25, God punished Israel because they rejected his prophets. And so by that same token, we cannot reject God when he comes to us directly in the flesh. And so uh, he's entreating the, the readers of this passage that if we reject Christ, God's messenger who comes to us, then will be treated exactly the way Israel was when they were displaced and they were sent out and taken away from their homeland, sent out from Jerusalem. And then in verse 26, that's actually a direct quote from Haggai 2, uh, verse 6, where God commands the people to build the second temple. And so where he's talking about this idea of, uh, I will shake the earth, but the heaven, he's saying God's temple will be established. That's the same symbolism of coming home to God's presence in Jerusalem that was just being talked about. And so he's saying this second shaking that is being alluded to is going to be the new covenant with the new Israel in the new Zion. Uh, Really quickly, verse 27, where it says once more, that suggests that this time this other shaking that it's talking about will be something that is final. Earth and heaven will be shaken, but heaven will stand. And then the final verses, the kingdom is going to remain regardless. And so the real question is, will we be a part of the kingdom or a part of the world? Because God's shaking of the earth and the heavens, that's coming regardless. The question is, will we be within his sacred place and in his presence when that happens? Or will we be outside where things can be shaken? And so... That's a very important question that he's posing to these Christians that are struggling with their faith and whether or not to remain in the church. So we'll finish up with chapter 13 next week. Thank you so much for your attention. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio.